Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Elise LeHue, the general manager of Sky Blue FC, which she has totally turned around in the NWSL. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Gio Reyna, Fabrizio Romano, and Idris Argandawal, along with many others. So check those interviews out. It would be absolutely huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little bit of time to rate and review us in Apple Podcast. We'll have Elise LeHue on soon, but let's start with some talk about the soccer world with my friend Taylor Rockwell from our partner, The Total Soccer Show. Taylor, thanks for joining me. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be talking soccer again. It was it was, what, uh, I think like four and a half days ago everything ended, and now we're right back to talking about a new season and a new start to that season. It's pretty incredible. There really was no offseason. Big weekend, uh, first big weekend of the new European season. And I want to start with Americans in Europe sure. because we're recording this on Sunday around 5.30 p.m. Eastern. Just saw Weston McKenney get the start for Juventus in his debut. They win their game against Sampdoria 3-0. And McKinney looked like he belonged. What was your sense? He looks like Gattuso. He looks like uh, uh, Gennaro Gattuso, <laughs> like reborn. And I think that's probably exactly what Andrea Pirlo wants. And that is exactly how he played. When I saw, so I didn't see the start of this game. I saw like Weston McKinney makes his first appearance or like for in a competitive game. And I thought like, okay, so he got like 15 minutes at the end. He kind of saw it out. That's great. Didn't realize he started. Didn't realize he played the entire game. And then watching the extended highlights, didn't realize like he is very instrumental in a lot of sequences. He has the big tackle that leads to a great shooting chance for Ronaldo. He is the shot that saves that that leads to a goal for Bonucci, I believe it was. He was mm -hmm. all over the place. I was really, really excited. I'm guessing Andrea Pirlo was as well. And he came about eight millimeters from, I think he would have gotten credit for the goal. Yeah. Really nice shot uh, off the ground and goal line technology ended up making the call to the naked eye. It looked in real time like it was a goal and I was mm -hmm. about ready to go through the roof. But um <laughs> Pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, and then he ended up at right wing back for the last several minutes of this game. Yes, he did. Which, which we've seen his versatility <laughs> yeah. before, which is pretty impressive. Um, but I'll be honest. I thought that playing time might be an issue mm -hmm. for Weston McKinney at Juventus. It still may because not all of their guys were available for this game. But I just think he couldn't have asked for a better start to show to Pirlo that you can trust me with yep. the way he played this game. And he was everywhere. Yeah. And and he was pretty simple with the ball, but not in a bad way. And it's already clear. And I've always noticed this over the years when Americans have gone to big clubs. I noticed this when Noguchi Yewu went to AC Milan. Mm -hmm. The Americans are all, almost always the coolest guys on the team. You can tell everyone likes them. Like, really? Gucci, uh, that's good Gucci, to know. Gooch was like Ronaldinho's favorite teammate at at Milan. And it's quite clear that in a very short amount of time, Weston McKenney's teammates at Juventus think this is a good dude. Yeah, I enjoyed, I think Tyler Adams was talking to Taylor Twelman about this and was basically saying, like, I think he's just trying to be in, like, in Ronaldo's orbit as much as he can be. <laughs> but to your point, like, they celebrated together. They seem to enjoy playing with one another. And it seems like he has kind of bedded in well. I think he has embrace the idea that I think you were referencing there of 
He's not going to be the number 10. He's not going to be doing the roulettes and scoring all the goals. He's going to do a lot of the work. He's going to keep it simple. He's going to keep the ball moving. I think that's why Juve wanted him. And I think if he executes that role and there's no dip in form, then, yeah, I think people are going to continue to enjoy him. And maybe he does end up becoming a, a bench player. Maybe he gets a few minutes here and there as more starters come back in and more starters are get fully fit. But all you can do is kind of play the games you're given, play the minutes you're given, and do what you need to. And thus far, in the first game, he has done very much that. Yeah. Uh, let's go on to Tyler Adams, who played for Leipzig on Sunday, started, went 90 minutes in their Bundesliga opener. They had an an easy win against Mainz. And here I, I was encouraged by one, Tyler Adams got the start because he mm-hmm. hasn't always had that happen under Julian Nagelsmann, but also central midfield, yeah, uh, which you know, he has a lot of versatility as well, like McKenney, but his best position is as a central midfielder. Yeah, ab- absolutely, undoubtedly. And it seems like Nagelsmann has bought into that as well. Uh, he was saying, I think before the season started, that this was going to be his quarterback, Tyler Adams is going to be. And you never knew if that was like, maybe if that was a German misunderstanding of football and he actually meant like cornerback and he's going to be playing out wide a lot. So it was nice to see that he was indeed playing centrally and having influence on the game from that spot. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, if you're a U.S. fan and you're seeing what's happen, happening just this weekend, yeah. but in general with these cornerstone pillars of the U.S. men's national team in their early 20s, you have to be excited because... McKenney goes to Juventus, starts, plays 90, does well. Tyler Adams coming off his game-winning goal in the Champions League quarterfinals uh, seems to be an important part of Nagelsmann's plans at Leipzig. Um, Gio Reyna, who we'll talk about in a second, scores his first Bundesliga goal for Dortmund. He's just 17 still, by the way. And you look around, yes, Christian Pulisic uh, is injured Mm -hmm. right now, but Obviously, was in a great run of form toward the end of last season. Got the number 10 shirt at Chelsea. He'll be back soon. And those guys, along with Serginio Dest, who apparently is now in a tug of war between Bayern Munich and Barcelona over who will get his services. Yeah, we could all relate to that experience, right? Of two of the biggest clubs (laughs) on the planet vying for our (laughs) services aggressively and publicly. Yeah, that's got to be kind of cool. And, And like, if you're Greg Berhalter... This is a great gig. You never have to actually coach your team, and your fans are really excited right now. <laughs> yeah, I think that there, there does remain that element of like, okay, but how are we going to screw this up? How is he not going to take advantage? <laughs> I think, but yes, to your point, I think Greg Berhalter has to be looking at this and thinking like, all of these guys are making big moves, and it does feel like not just making big moves, but making big moves to, yes, Weston McKinney plays right wing back for like the very end of this game, but mostly is playing as that sort of ball-winning aggressive, tough, tough tackling number eight that I would expect he wants to see him play, uh, play for the United States. Tyler Adams playing in a similar role to what we want to see for the U.S. Christian Pulisic the same. Gio Reyna the same, now playing a bit more central. So I think also you have to be excited about the fact that it's not just that these guys are getting minutes playing left back, but for us, they're going to be a right winger. It feels like they're getting minutes in the places where we need them and in systems that are roughly similar to what Greg Berhalter wants them to be playing in. Yeah, it's, it's just really exciting right Absolutely. now for U.S. fans. And, and it would be nice to see these guys play together Hopefully they'll get one or two games over in Europe uh, in one of these upcoming windows. Nothing officially announced yet. It's Let's talk. He, a- he said he said that it would be like what like two, like the rough guess was that it would be two camps, right? That there'd be like the mm-hmm. American one, and then there would be a European, a couple of European games with a more European squad. So hopefully we will get that. But as you said, nothing official quite yet. Right. Let's talk Gio Reyna because this was another good sign. He gets the start. 
at 17 for a very good Dortmund team, then combines with another 17-year-old, Jude Bellingham, who gives him the assist, really classy finish for Dortmund's first goal. Um, and then Erling Haaland does his thing, two more goals <laughs> later. Uh, but one of those, a penalty in which Reyna earned the penalty. Yep. Um, this was an even better performance than I was expecting from Gio Reyna. It's the best performance I've seen from him for Dortmund so far, which isn't really saying much when he's scoring goals and creating chances, but more how there weren't those moments of like, oh, that was good, but then that was bad. Or like, ah, you could still see the 17-year-old there in some of the decision-making. It seems like he spent the offseason getting... Like, more familiar with the style of play, handling the physicality a little bit, but the decision-making seems to just be a little bit faster, and that is the difference there. If you're not having to think about, should I turn and go at a defender, or do I want to turn with the outside or inside, but you kind of know instinctively, that is the difference-maker, and I think you could see his game just being that much more fluid this weekend, at least. Yeah, um, I'm really excited about everything connected to Gio Reyna. He was on the podcast uh, a week and a half right, ago. Yeah. Uh, really good interview. A little bit like Tyler Adams in that he talks like a 35-year-old. It's so strange. Yeah. In a 17-year-old's body. But just the way he talks the game, actually. The next interview that I do with Reyna, whenever that is, is going to be... I want to do like a hardcore soccer interview because I was really impressed just with how he talks the sport. You realize he likes to analyze it. He talks about stuff with his dad a lot, he, yeah. he mentioned. Uh, but just kind of the way he discusses the game is uh, was really cool. I'm always kind of upset and mildly offended when teenagers utilize the word like in their sentences less than I do. Uh, that's never a good sign for me, a person who's supposed to be good with their words. Supposed another, to be being the operative word there. Um, another guy we had on the podcast not long ago, Pellegrino Matarazzo, the American coaching Stuttgart. Rough start, unfortunately, for him. Uh, they lose 3-2 at home in their Bundesliga debut to Freiburg. Came back in this game from being down. Uh, but it's a long season. Uh, we'll see how that goes. And Josh Sargent for Werder Bremen. They look pretty bad. <laughs> I was wondering how you were, what you were going to go with on that one. Yes, they did. And whereas, like... I think in the Bundesliga, for me, I am like nominally a Schalke fan. Is kind of where I have like migrated over the years, and it was really nice to not feel any obligation to watch them now that Weston McKinney is not there. <laughs> I can't say the same of Werder Bremen. And in the first half, I guess I had sort of bought into that narrative that like actually they might turn it around and they've got the building blocks. And it seems like Florian Kohfeldt knows what he wants from them. And after the first forty-five minutes, I was like, I'm gonna go see what else is going on because <laughs> Josh Sargent at left midfield, which is not a thing I expected, and then. A lot of the kind of consistency issues in how to create attacks and how to defend as a cohesive unit were still very much on display. Yeah, it was not a great start for Werder Bremen. <laughs> Part of me wonders, I, I, I think it's good that they didn't go down in the big picture. But if it's, it's only one game, but this mm -hmm. could be a long season there. Yeah, I think for Bremen and for Schalke, I think they are in for it. it. To some extent, I feel like Pellegrino Matarazzo can take solace in the fact that lots of other teams looked way worse <laughs> than, than, he, than he did this weekend, than his side did this weekend. Now, speaking of the Bundesliga and bringing in the Premier League, I wanted yeah. to talk about Peacock Premium, which is the new pay service, streaming service from NBC Sports, where this weekend... It was all, almost all of their Premier League games, including the best ones, mm -hmm. were behind this new added paywall. And we had never seen them do that with NBC Gold in, in previous seasons where, like, the best game of the weekend, in this case, like, the marquee game was 
Chelsea mm -hmm. uh, against Liverpool, that it was put behind an additional paywall. And I ended up tweeting, there's obviously a lot of anger out there among soccer fans in the US, but I ended up tweeting, this may actually be a weekend where we remember down the line for the, the German Bundesliga, mm -hmm. maybe making up some of the gap in popularity in the US with the English Premier League. And, yeah. and maybe I'll be wrong, you know, maybe that won't be the case, but I just think the combination of forcing people to dip into their wallet again for something, um, for, you know, for big games in the Premier League, plus the Bundesliga moving to ESPN plus, which is a paywall, but at least this is the biggest thing to me. I'm a cord cutter mm -hmm. is if I pay for games to a service, I want that service to have every game live from that league. Right. Yeah. Because if that's not the case, cause that's what CBS does with champions league and, and, uh, Europa league. Uh, that is essentially what the Bundesliga and the Italian league have mm. with ESPN plus. But if you split it up so that I have to pay to get the NBC sports network and this Peacock premium, not only is that frustrating for me, I think it's bad for the growth of soccer in America because I think you're going to end up shutting off a lot of potential. There's millions of new fans that can still be created out there and you've erected a barrier now. Yeah, absolutely. And like really to double down on it because I know we, we like people say retweets are not endorsements. I retweeted your, your tweet. I endorsed that tweet. I think it's, a, <laughs> it's an astute point because the Premier League has, I think, grown leaps and bounds in the United States because it, it's English speaking. That always helps because it has a lot of the marquee names, but it has the marquee names because it has the coverage and it becomes this cycle. And when suddenly you can't just tune in, you can't DVR stuff, you don't really know where it's going to be, you have to really think about it. And you and that was not the case for the, the first years of those broadcasts. They really kind of set the standard and are now changing it when you still have people paying for cable and now they don't have access, but now they're putting it on this app that then even little things like with uh, NBC Sports Gold, as I recall, at least if they had a game at 10 and then a game at noon, it would roll over. You wouldn't have to go find that other game with the Peacock app. The game ended and the coverage ended and I had to go find the like the pre-show talk from the post game of the last. It was and it was just it wasn't very user friendly. I cannot remember such strong backlash to an app in a very long time. It almost felt like this was the tipping point of the jokes about like, if only we had some sort of cable service that bundled everything together and then you didn't have to have separate streams. <laughs> this was, I heard that joke many times. This was the first time I felt like there was real anger behind this decision. When you have pros tweeting out like, this is dumb. Why have they done this? That's not a good look. That is not a good look at all. And I'm, I'm guessing NBC will have to have a rethink about how they're going about things. I hope they do. You know, the other thing is I just wish they would offer a tier that you could get yeah. every live Premier League game. I would pay up to $10 a month for that. Mm -hmm. I'm paying $5 a month right now for... Uh, for this kind of halfway measure with Peacock Premium, but I would love to not need to get YouTube TV. All I really watch is soccer, yeah. you know? And I get all these channels on YouTube TV that I, I don't watch, and it just feels like, why did I cut the cord? Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. And then to like to bring it home with your second point, with ESPN Plus, like, yes, it's a, it's a paid service. 
you do have to, you know, it's a subscription thing. But then you're getting Bundesliga, Serie A, Major League Soccer, at least some Major League Soccer, USL, yeah. USL League One. Like you, you get access FA to, Cup. yeah, you get access to so many more things. And then on top of that, other sports as well. Whereas with Peacock, at least this weekend, when they were kind trying to promote U.S. Open, like that's I know people like golf. That's wonderful. I am not a person who that appeals to. I would much rather be have a Bundesliga game promoted or a Serie A game promoted. So I think also in that regard. It does push people towards that one gives me the most bang for my buck. That's the one I'm going to go with if I have to choose one. And I don't think that's going to be peacock, peacock for a lot of people or Peapop either. I do like the way Rebecca Lowe says the word peacock. It, it, that is it, true. It's very British and, and I, I do enjoy that. That's the, the one positive thing I will say. Yeah, I will never say a negative word about Rebecca Lowe. She can do oh, whatever Oh, gosh, no. Yes. Um, let's talk about a couple of big games sure. from the weekend. Chelsea nil, Liverpool 2. Uh, game changed when Christensen was sent off. Until that moment, mm-hmm. I felt like Chelsea had a shot in this game because they did look potentially dangerous on the counter. When Timo Werner gets going, yeah. he's a very fast dude. Yeah, I wasn't sure. I mean, I knew he was fast. I wasn't sure how well he was going to fit in. And I had some doubts as to how efficient and ruthless he was going to look. He has looked efficient and ruthless. I think, And I think there will be people who point out that, like, oh, see, it's still the defensive issues for Chelsea. It's still that's what coming back to bite them. I would say it's a little bit more that they were going for it in that one moment, and they do get caught out. But I'm with you that, for the most part, this was a more even game than I expected it to be up until that red card. Yeah, and then Kepa did Kepa things. And then there's that. That doesn't help. It's really <laughs> it doesn't help when then, on the other end, Allison has a, an amazing penalty save. That, that stands. We'll talk more about the one that yes. doesn't stand later on. <laughs> but, like, the juxtaposition there of those two goalkeepers – Signing for their clubs, I believe, in the same window for an insane amount of money. One of them has justified that. One of them has done the opposite of that. So I'm going to have a slightly obscure reference here, but it's so rare that you see a player like Kepa in this case come like mentally unglued, yeah, like in the field of play. And it reminded me of Richie Tenenbaum in the Royal Tenenbaums, just having a total meltdown. Where, in fact, they had like a fake Sports Illustrated magazine with the cover line, Meltdown! Exclamation point. Oh, I forgot about that one. I forgot about that entirely. Though That's Luke Wilson's character, right? Yes. Yeah, he spends the entire game dressed in tennis clothes, and I forgot that he was a tennis player. I thought you were going to go Chuck Knobloch and, and the yips and the inability to throw to first base, was it? But yes, yes. I think either way. Yeah, when you have that that level of like public issue, it is sort of yeah, it becomes a Wes Anderson movie. I think that's fair. Oh my goodness, put Kepa out of his misery. I like. Here's my question though: Is yeah. they're bringing in? They announced this. I, I, Fabrizio Romano, another recent interviewee, uh, breaks the story during the game right yes. after Kepa's yeah. like screw up that it is a done deal that uh, Edward Mendy, the mm-hmm. Ren goalkeeper, Senegal goalkeeper is coming to Chelsea. Um, When I look at the signing of Allison being, that was a huge thing for Liverpool to get, to take the next step. Um, I think Ederson is of almost that Mm -hmm. quality for Man City. Yep. I don't, I mean, no disrespect to Edouard Mendy. I don't view him as one of the five or 10 best goalkeepers in the world. And so mm-hmm. if you're Chelsea and you've, you've been willing to spend a fair amount of money, including on Kepa, by the way, yeah. um, why not like try and, and get Jan Oblak and just spend? Yeah. I, I, my, my guess would be like two things, just, just like complete spitballing. One is probably that the 
the fee at this point for somebody like Jan Oblak because Atletico would be fully aware that Chelsea are now in a little bit of a state of panic and are going to spend a lot of money. So you're probably getting like a double fee or at least one and a half times the normal fee. But I would guess maybe there's an element of they've looked at what they need from Kepa and what he cannot do, and that's what they've prioritized. And maybe it is Jan Oblak is a better shot stopper, but that not might necessarily be what they're looking for if they want somebody who's comfortable coming off their line, playing with a higher line, like like winning balls that are over the top, but like coming and claiming crosses. That is stuff that Kepa has really struggled with, and you can see his confidence be as low as it is. So maybe that's what they're looking for, is just a player who can allow Chelsea to play the way they want not necessarily be the world's greatest shot stopper. That's my assumption, at least. I'm still mystified. I would read a long written story about the Mm -hmm. whole process that Chelsea went through to make Kepa still the most expensive goalkeeper in the history of the game. Yeah. And the valuation process, I just... He's never been that good. Was he coming from a Basque club? Is Athletic. that what I recall? Athletic yeah. So, so then it's it's probably the release clause aspect of it, right? That like they know they want oh, this yeah. goalkeeper. They've got to yeah. meet the release clause because there's not many Basque goalkeepers that they True. can replace him with. So I'm guessing that's a huge part of it. And if you're Chelsea, you've just decided that's the one. The problem might be that it was a different Chelsea manager <laughs> or a different Chelsea scout of the time who thought that was the way to go. I think... I don't begrudge them going for Kepa. I also really don't think it's the wrong choice. He could go to his next club and not allow a goal for two seasons, and I still think Chelsea were probably making the right move. Because at this point, I don't understand how anybody in that team truly ever trusts him when he has the ball or when he's coming to claim a cross. And I think that's a major issue for them. Sadio Mane, by the way, really good in this game uh, for Liverpool. I don't want to totally ignore them. Um, They've got enough publicity. They're fine. (laughs) And you mentioned that Allison, uh, a big penalty save. Uh, how crazy is it after what happened in the Man United game when De Gea makes a a nice penalty save and was like a fraction of a few inches Mm -hmm. off his line, so it gets retaken and converted. Um, When the save was made by Allison today, Mm -hmm. my initial feeling was I I waited for the whistle to, to call a retake. I've now been conditioned to do this. Yeah, yeah. I thought the same thing. And you always, it is the blessing and the curse of VAR. If you can, like, if it's your team that's just conceded, you can take some solace in the idea that, like, maybe they were offside. It's going to be checked. It's never going to be a bad goal given. But simultaneously, you can never be entirely confident that things are what they seem to be because they could end up being called back. But it wasn't, and it shouldn't have been. And it is just... It's one of those saves that, like, you just have to give credit. Maybe it could have been hit a little bit better or a little bit more to the corner, but it's still he gets down, gets the big hand to it, and keeps it out, and then it doesn't then spill for a rebound goal. That's great goalkeeping, and I feel like Kepa probably saw that. I was just like, oh, man, that, that makes me look worse. Come on. <laughs> so, Mr. Man United fan, let's talk about uh, Man United's loss. Oh, Grant, uh, you're cutting out. I can't, I can't hear you anymore. <laughs> we got to move on to the next topic, I think, unfortunately. Man United 1, Crystal Palace 3. At Old Trafford. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously the penalty save retake is going to yeah. get a lot of people talking about it. It, it was like a flashback to the Women's World Cup from yeah. 2019 where we saw this happen on, on numerous occasions. And then I ended up interviewing um, Pierluigi Colina, who mm-hmm. is the head of referees for FIFA. Uh, and this came up. And he was very militant that he thinks this was the right uh, change to put in and use with VAR. And he thinks for far too long, goalkeepers have been coming off their line with impunity. Um, and now this season, as opposed to last season, FIFA 
and IFAB have really said, you need to enforce this Premier yeah. League and other European leagues. And so we're seeing it happen. What were your emotions watching that yesterday? I mean, it's as a fan, it's always frustrating because you feel like, okay, that's, and it's David De Gea who's, you know, there's all the talk of should he still be the starter? Should it be Dean Henderson? Is this going to be the season that he really does truly fall off? And to kind of make that save in that moment, it feels like, okay, this could be the start of something. And so then when it's called back, there's that element of frustration. I will be totally honest, and this is my co host influence. I am a bit more when it comes to soccer. Like, look, that's the rule, and it's really frustrating, but I get it. He's off the line. If you're off by an inch or if you're off by two yards, you're off the line. I have more of an issue, to be honest, and taking it away from your actual question to <laughs> sort of related is that for people who didn't see it, the penalty is not given initially, as I remember, but then it comes back because there's uh, uh, Lindelof is judged to have hand- handled the ball. And to my understanding, last season, this is where I get more confused. Last season, I don't think that's given as a penalty because last Hmm. season they seem to be giving a ton of leeway to if the attacker is sort of trying to make a play on the ball and it happens to hit their hand. It doesn't really matter if their hand's in an unnatural position. It has to do with the time that they have to react. To me, there's no way he could have known what he was doing. There's no intentionality there. That was more confusing to me because that seems to be a change that they have made. Whereas the De Gea one... It's annoying. It's the same thing as having, you know, your big toe be offside. Timo Werner almost has a chance to, uh, taken back uh, because, or the penalty that they end up getting and then not taking almost gets taken away because he was like maybe just barely like a half an inch offside, but it ends up not being the case. That stuff, it's, it's, it's very specific, but it is the rule. And until you change the rule, that's the way it's going to be. But the strange like season-to-season changes like, oh, no, it is a handball now, and then maybe next season it's not, that's where I get more frustrated with VAR. You mentioned Lindelof. Mm-hmm. Is he good enough to be the starting center back for Man United? I can't tell if this is just the frustration people have with him like bleeding into me because I have never had this, that level of frustration. I felt like he's a good positional defender. I feel like he 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 takes good positions. He when he has a good relationship with his other center back partner and I think there were times when he did last season with Harry Maguire, I think he's fine. Then there's games like this where I I see it and I think like okay, maybe this is what people are talking about because it was all on display. Obviously the penalty is harsh if you want to go that route, but then he makes a kind of weak step to it. Weston McKinney wins that ball. There's no third goal in this game if Weston McKinney is that center back. And for the first goal, he doesn't make a, a physical enough play on it. I, I think probably not. I think he probably will end up being the start of this season because I don't think they're going to invest, or at least not to the extent that they bring in the three, four, five players that Manchester United seem to need. So I think he will be the starter. But no, I probably think he should not be the uh, out-and-out one for sure. Yeah, interesting to see what will happen in the remainder of this transfer window and what sort of demands there are. Mm-hmm. Jaden Sancho, uh, will he get another late run from Man United? What do you think? My prediction heading into this weekend was that they would lose this game and then they would end up spending <laughs> more than his release clause. I still think that if they get him this window... It's going to be for 130 million, probably. Even though Dortmund Oof. are asking for 117, uh, that that seems to be more in line with how Manchester United do business lately. Uh, from everything I've heard from German media, we had Manuel Vates from Transfermarkt on the show last week. It seems like there will be no movement. That unless there is a massive offer from Manchester United, he's staying put. Dortmund seem to have all of the uh, strength in these negotiations. They ha- they really have all the leverage. So. Unless there is a massive offer, I don't see why they would leave. And I honestly don't really know why he would want to go to Manchester United right now. So we shall see. But I, as a Man United fan, am not optimistic about that one. Maybe they go for like slightly more reasonable purchases, which probably will not satiate the furious masses. (laughs) 
<laughs> Let's talk just a little bit about MLS sure. uh, to wrap things up here. And my first question is, how good is Columbus? They are the points leader in this league. One again over the weekend, 2-0 against Nashville. And it seems like Caleb Porter, who has you know, won championships in yeah. this league, it, it has, has put together a team here that can win another one. Yeah, I mean, that's the importance of the consistency and chemistry and your players buying in. I've been watching the All or Nothing documentary about Tottenham, and you can see the few players that have bought into Mourinho's system. And if you get everybody on board, maybe that has that massive impact. I contrast that with Columbus, where it feels like every player has is sort of playing for the team, for Porter and for their teammates. And so you get moments of selflessness that I think you have to have if you want to have the run they're on and have the success they've had. And then you've got to find moments like Giassi Zardes with a like reverse in-step finish when the ball is played behind him. That gets the headlines, but not the Giassi Zardes picking up the ball, driving at a defense, getting by a player. I think getting by another one and then playing the centering ball for the first goal, he gets the assist there, at least the MLS assist. And those types of moments of your forward dropping in, facilitating attack, but then scoring one himself, it's kind of exactly what you want if you're a Columbus fan. And a, a fan of soccer in general but I think it speaks volumes about what Caleb Porter has done for that team yeah and, and I just I think Darlington Nagby too is is a great addition to that team and and his ability to come in and do some very special things that not many U.S. players at least can do um, I just like the way that team's been put together and and they're definitely getting the results on the field I think they probably should be annoyed that uh, they didn't win the MLS's yeah. back tournament because yeah. you know at least in the group stage they had looked to be the best team uh, in that tournament. But how much, how much interaction have you had with Caleb Porter? A little bit over the years. He's one of my favorite interviews because you know that even if he 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 loves to talk and 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 ruminate and so even if you say like this is gonna be like a 15, 20 minute interview, like you look down at your watch later and it's like forty five minutes or an hour and it's all it's all good stuff. And and so like and that's simply because he wants to really get in into depth, depth and detail. So we'll get him on the podcast here before too long. Uh, in fact, we were going to have him on. I think I jinxed his team during the MLS's back tournament because we had set it up. If they had won their first elimination game, like we would do it the next day and then they uh. lost. And so, you know how superstitious coaches are. He'll probably never want to speak to me again. <laughs> <laughs> It's all your fault. It's all your fault. But I, I think he's terrific. And uh, and you look at, at what he's achieved in the NCAA and, and in Portland and now in Columbus. Um, yeah, just very, very impressive. Plus, he hired Levy Bird as one of his assistants, uh, hey, my former yeah. SI.com writing colleague. So uh, I'm pretty fired up for Levy. Yeah. Um, we talked about how good is Columbus. <laughs> On the other end of the scale. Yeah. How bad are San Jose and Atlanta right now? I think they are bad. I think that they're also bad in like interesting ways, which in some <laughs> ways makes them worse. Because for San Jose, obviously the system that Ameda is trying to play with the man marking all over the field, it, it, it's so strange is I guess the best way I can explain it that then when it doesn't go well it so obviously doesn't go well that it becomes a much larger talking point point. <laughs> and I think for Atlanta because they've been so good and have the fan base and have gotten all the attention that they have I would say justifiably when it goes south 
I think there have been people who have been waiting for it to go south <laughs> to then maybe dig in a little bit. But I think it also it stands out that much more. It's like if the Patriots suddenly had like a, a two and fourteen season, <laughs> it would be that much more like what is happening versus yeah, in a league where there's parity, sometimes you're going to have down seasons, and that's the way it goes. When you lose your coach and another player, and then another player leaves mid season for the Middle East, it's always going to be a little <laughs> bit odd. Uh, and I shouldn't say they lose their coach because I guess they parted ways with their manager. So I think it'll be a big. A big aspect of it will be who comes in next and how does it go from here. But I think it's the success that Atlanta have had makes them seem worse. And I think the strangeness of Almeida's system makes San Jose look worse. Here's the crazy thing, though. I love watching San Jose games. Mm -hmm. Not for any reason that maybe San Jose may want me to enjoy watching them, but like... If you put it like a highlight or low light reel together of some of the goals that they have conceded this year, it's ridiculous. Yep. It's like that one goal against Vancouver in uh, MLS's back where like I'm in tears because there's like no there's like a set piece and every single player except the goalkeeper for San Jose is is in front of the goal and then and then Vancouver just goes coast to coast yeah it, it, it ended up being an own goal if you're gonna um, be bad be historically bad and then at least you stand out that way it's the darby county rule it's, we all know darby county we just know that it's because they got 12 points in one season it, it, the jordan morris goal recently by seattle for seattle against san yeah. jose where he just kind of like ran through their entire defense. like this yeah. is stuff that you just don't see elsewhere. And mm-hmm. it, it almost makes me wonder, like, you know, they lost, San Jose lost 6-1 this weekend to Portland at home. Is, is Almeida trying to get fired? Are the players trying to get him fired? I, I think he is, he is doing a, like, kind of time-tested thing, which is he is sticking to the system because I think the argument would be the system is not the problem. It is the fact that he doesn't have a particularly deep squad. He doesn't have the talent maybe necessary to play the way he wants to, and so you can adapt and you can change the way you want to play, or you can stick with it and be like, look, this is how it's going to be. If you want it to get better, either get rid of me or back me and bring me the players I need. To some extent, I think it's what Solskjaer was doing with some of his lineup selections this weekend for Manchester United. And I kind of respect it that it's like, yeah, you're going out playing your style of soccer. And I think the thing with Almeida is that I do have the confidence in him that I do think he is a good manager. He is a smart tactician. He has interesting ideas about the game. Not to this degree, but it's a little bit Bielsa-ish of like, yeah, if it goes wrong for Marcelo Bielsa at Leeds this season, that doesn't mean he's a bad manager or got it wrong or failed to adapt. I think it's that he didn't want to adapt. And to some extent, that is a a difference. And maybe it's not that meaningful of a difference when you're losing by five goals every single game. But it is still one that I feel like is kind of important. The thing about Atlanta, a couple things. One, uh, I do think this is a candidate for the biggest amount of schadenfreude oh, yeah. from any all the other people in the league really yeah. enjoying the fact that Atlanta is, is suddenly this bad. Um, the other candidate, I think, would be the 2008 LA Galaxy with David Beckham and Landon Donovan that yeah. was truly a terrible team, finishing near the bottom of the standings, missing the playoffs, uh, which is also in my first book that whole season. It is. Um, but I think there's a lot of schadenfreude around the league then as well. Um, is it true, that I, this report, that Frank DeBoer may be the next Holland manager? I have seen that report. Uh, 
I guess it makes sense if you're in the <laughs> Netherlands. They they have they roll some dice. They 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 go for managers. I mean, Ronald Koeman was not coming off the most successful stint when he took over, and now he's at Barcelona, not wearing socks for some reason. Uh, so maybe that's what they're going for. I have a hard time. You can tell that I'm reaching on this one. I don't really know why they would go with Frank de Boer because. Not so good at Inter, not so good at Crystal Palace, not so good at Atlanta United. I guess maybe good if he's back in his homeland, but uh, maybe, maybe, or, yeah, maybe they need to go Ronald DeBoer. Maybe that's the difference. Put him in charge <laughs> and let Frank be the assistant, and we'll see how that one works out. This would be one of the greatest cases of failing upward in recent soccer history, I would think. And I they can't that be not- that hard. They have to have other Dutch coaches. <laughs> There's got to be somebody else out there. You know, it's just like... It- and I, I always have to mention this. I assume you've seen the, the YouTube clip of Jose Mourinho being asked about Frank DeBoer in his comments about... No. Okay, so when Mourinho was the oh, Man United sense. coach, Frank DeBoer had just come off this terrible uh, stint at Crystal Palace, getting fired after like seven games. And uh, he was quoted saying that he thought that Mourinho was not handling the development of Marcus Rashford well. Oh, no. And so Mourinho's asked about it at a press conference. This is one of my favorite YouTube clips ever. And, and Mourinho says, Frank DeBoer, worst manager in Premier League history. Seven games, seven losses, zero goals. The if man Marcus can, Ra- he can put together a soundbite. He can put together a soundbite. And he is... I uh, That documentary... <laughs> Maybe I'm just like all in on Jose Mourinho from that one and I've bought into the hype. But I do think that a lot of his answers are very revealing and he knows how to answer a question simultaneously not saying anything and saying a lot. And then he has answers like that, which are just pretty much devastating and cut right through you. Yeah. I think he finished it by saying, if Marcus Rashford wants to learn how to lose, he would play for Frank. Oh. Goodness gracious. I love Jose. Poor Frank DeBoer. Poor Frank DeBoer. But maybe it'll work out. You never know. Maybe that's what it takes going back and managing at the international level. You can figure things out. On that note, thank you so much for joining me, Taylor. Hope you have a great rest of the week. Thank you uh, for having me. Always a pleasure. And I look forward to the next time. Now, here's my interview with Elise LeHue. Our guest now is Elise LeHue. She's the general manager of the NWSL's Sky Blue FC which she has helped lead to a major turnaround on and off the field over the last couple years. Elise, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Grant. Has it been a couple years already? Oh, time is going. (laughs) The time does go by quickly. Um, It's incredible what you've done since coming to Sky Blue, because there's obviously a much better vibe around Sky Blue these days than there was when you took the job there two years ago. In fact, the club has kind of gone from being the embarrassment of the league in in many ways on and off the field to something completely different. Could you describe sort of like what you saw from the start when you came in and then how you started to try and address those things? Yeah, I think some of the challenges of Sky Blue were very public. So there's, um, you know, not much else I can say that you couldn't go read about in some of the old articles and it had become... um, you know, a bit of a powder keg, I think, at a certain point, just the, the conditions um, that the players were in and maybe, you know, inequitable compared to other teams in the league and the pace at which NWSL was growing um, in really positive ways. 
you know, I think Sky Blue hadn't fully kept pace with that over the years, um, had been maybe a little stagnant at times. Um, what I saw coming into it was one, you're in one of the best markets in the world. So that immediately to me is a really bright spot um, of possibility for what you can do in this area. I've, I've traditionally worked on clubs in bigger markets, so I know the challenges of going into big markets versus maybe some mid-tier markets. Um, and there's a lot of challenges in, in large scale, large size markets where you're competing with a lot of different pro sports teams, a lot of different entertainment dollars for families. Um, so trying to crack into that landscape can be difficult. But I just saw a lot of possibility here at Sky Blue. I saw players that were really, really good people on and off the field um, that wanted to, to do right, that wanted to be in a good situation. So there were some really good people around the club. And then certainly Tammy Murphy, one of the owners that came on. Around the same time I did in sort of a managing director role, she had been very quiet along the way, hadn't had a lot to do with the club, um, but she came to the forefront and she and I kind of went hand in hand in this project and we called it just blocking and tackling um, and just getting after things and figuring out step by step what could we do to not only keep pace with the league, but also start to create a new vision for what this club should be in this marketplace. Did you divide those big tasks into any sort of general areas or sort of things that you had an even higher priority to get fixed as soon as possible and some that maybe might take a little bit longer? Yeah, going back to those on-field issues um, around players. I, I mean, if you don't have the the trust and the, the loyalty and the support of the players, you're going to have a really hard time doing anything with a club. So it was really starting there just at the base level and going, okay, what can we do in terms of training facility, in terms of um, stadium? You know, we played a couple games at Red Bull Arena that first year I was there. Um, you know, I came into the role, uh, I think, three days before the first game of the season. So season was pretty, you know, well well in place at that point. Um, but playing at Red Bull Arena was definitely the, the dream of mine and something that I wanted to see us do. So being able to, by the end of that season, get a couple games at Red Bull Arena, have them be very popular, really well attended. Um, it was also just really joyful for me seeing the players' faces at having that opportunity to step into a venue of that caliber and to really feel like true professionals at that point. And I knew we were certainly on to something there, but it was really starting with some of the player needs because we had to get that right first. I mean, you had a situation in 2019 where the team's top two picks in the draft literally didn't want to play for the team. Uh, like, how do you change the vibe, just how the team is viewed by players, potential players? You want to have players who want to come play for your team. Yeah, again, if you don't have players that want to be there or you, you're not going to get players that want to come there, it's it's going to be impossible. And all players talk, you know, they talk to each other, they know what they're getting in each market and they know, you know, what the opportunities are. So you have to get that right, uh, you know, and not being able to, you know, maybe bring in draft picks that we sign or having, you know, folks that might not want to come play with us, that puts us at an uneven starting line. You know, you're essentially way back from the starting line where everybody else is at, and it's going to be really difficult to compete in that type of environment. So I go back to just that blocking and tackling of picking things off one by one and saying, okay, we're going to get this done. We're going to work on training facility. We're going to work on venue. We're going to create this better environment for the players, kind of stabilize the environment. And those were the things that we had to start with. And it was a little by little process, brick by brick, building that up. Um, 
I think on the surface, some things might have looked very quick or very easy. There certainly was a lot behind the scenes. And again, Tammy and I were really hand in hand on just getting through that. I have to give a lot of credit to the staff that was around me. Um, very competent, very eager. They they wanted to see this successful. They really cared. And, and we just, um, you know, busted our asses to make sure all of this was going to happen and, and do what we could for the players to, to make it a better environment. We knew the fans would follow suit once we did that. Well, I mean, just two weekends ago, we were watching your team on big CBS before a, a sizable national audience win a game late. And Mal Pugh and Midge Purse looked like they could be a potential force up front. I, I am hoping Midge stays toward the front, but we'll see. Um, and... Like, I'm, I'm wondering, you brought both of those teams or both of those players into the team. How did the process go in getting those two players for your team? Yeah, Freya Coombe, the head coach, you know, we uh, brought her on towards the end of last season in sort of a stabilization role to just get us through the end of the year. Um, I had a lot of faith and trust in her after watching her do that. So it was exciting to be able to hire her full time and bring her on and once we did that, she and I and uh, Marsha McDermott, our technical advisor, just sat and we whiteboarded, right? It's like a vision board. Okay, which players would we like to have? Who are the best players in the league in every position? And creating that out and then saying, okay, well, probably can't get that player realistically. That team isn't going to give that player up. And going through our list and we created this vision board of, okay, here's the slew of players we would like. It is, you know by some level of grace that we nearly knocked off every player that we were looking to obtain. You know, we had the situation where could we get McCall? Could we get Mal? Could we get Mitch? And eh, maybe two of them, if things go really, really well, you know, that was kind of our dream. So when the opportunity came up to get Mal it actually didn't happen until the, the draft in January, we thought that was long past. We had explored it. It looked like it passed. It came up again, very last minute. Um, so being able to bring her into the environment after already, you know, being able to get McCall, bringing Midge on, um, even being able to bring in um, Ify Anamana, who was a player that we had been looking at. Um, we really, you know, created that vision board and went after it and believed in it. And, um, you know, just really lucky that we got players that also have the right personality for this environment because we're a changing club. You know, you got to be a little gritty to be here. We know that still things we still have a long way to go. Um, but seeing the results of building that roster and just seeing the way they relate to each other and the team is really compatible, that they really get along with one another and are doing well, um, feel really blessed to be in that situation to have a, a team like this right now. Yeah, obviously, as you mentioned, McCall Zerboni as well is one of the most accomplished winners in, in league history and a kind of a culture changer. Um, in terms of Carly Lloyd, obviously, that's a player, too, who has a, a tremendous a career that she's had and you know at club and country like what is her situation sort of right now moving forward I know it's been a, a process for her to try and come back from injury yeah you know with Carly obviously she's a player that's not accustomed to this you know this getting an injury and having to sit out she just has you know never really gone through that it was a bit of an overuse injury in the off season and just unfortunate you know we she knows her body I don't need to dictate that for her. So if she could be here and, and could play right now, I know she would be. Um, we, we trust in that process for her. It's a, a shame, obviously, that we couldn't have her for the Challenge Cup and um, for this fall series as well. She's still rehabbing. We're in constant communication. You know, we, we long for the day she gets back out here in a sky blue jersey, especially now because we've, you know, changed the environment around her. You know, I think last year we relied on her. She really was our primary goal scorer. We put a lot of weight on her, which she's fine with. She can carry that weight. 
Um, but I would love to see her now in the environment that we've created where there's some options out there where she maybe doesn't have to carry all the weight. So I'm looking forward to that day that we can get her back on the field again. I want to ask you a little bit about your story and the things that you've done in the past in your career uh, that have sort of helped prepare you for what you're doing now um, uh, with Sky Blue. I know you were with the Red Stars in Chicago for five years as as general manager. I know you spent time with the Seattle WNBA team. Uh, what's sort of your, your backstory? Yeah, I um, came out with a non-sports background and just at some point decided I was going to be a GM many, many years ago, back before the last league WPS, and um, just kept stalking the website um, back back before WPS. We're talking like 2007, 2008. Um, and uh, when an email address finally popped up on the site, I went after it and just said, I'll come work for free. Just let me get in the door. And I got lucky. Peter Wilt was there as the president. Marsha McDermott was the general manager. I got to sit around a table with them. Like, I wasn't getting paid, but for three months to sit around a table with those two, like, you know, I probably should have paid them, honestly, for the experience I got out of it. And just lucky enough, I was one of the first employees hired there. And that was the beginning of my story. Um, was was getting to work in Chicago and work my way up the totem pole and uh, you know had a had a stint out in LA actually I was the GM of the LA Blues at the time USL Pro it was the first first year of USL Pro Pally Blues um, that was a great first experience for me in a really big challenging market um, so I learned trial by fire very quickly um, but yeah ended up coming back to Chicago which was always my my love and my home and got to be the GM there for five years so spent about eight years overall in Chicago. Um, you know, after five years, I think Arnim and I had worked, Arnim, the owner there in Chicago, we'd worked together for a very long time. Um, I myself was feeling a little burnt out and I felt like the club club needed an injection of just something new. So I actually stepped away, which was, that was my dream job. So it was hard to step away, but I felt like it was time. Um, and I did um, something really unusual that people are surprised by, but I sort of went down the ladder and I went to the WNBA. I took a sponsorship manager role because that was the one area I felt like I didn't know enough in and I wanted to learn from one of the best teams in the women's game that's doing it. Um, so I call that my gap year, but went out to the WNBA, learned a ton. It was an awesome experience. I got to go to rain games and just watch it as a fan um, for the first time. So that was really nice to just sit back and, and watch games without having any uh, you know background motive in watching them. Um, and then obviously ended up, uh, ended up here at Sky Blue, which is, again, an unusual part of the process. But I knew Denise Reddy, who was the head coach at the time, really well. She and I had always talked about trying to work together again. And I knew she was struggling out here, that there were some challenges at the club. And I, I knew of Sky Blue, obviously, from working in the league. And, you know, she asked me to come out here. I was like, I, I don't think so. You know, I'm, I'm good out here in Seattle. But uh, eventually over time, she was persistent. And I was like, OK, so soccer's my calling. I got to go back. Um, and ended up out here at Sky Blue. When you're offered the Sky Blue job, which in all honesty to some people would have been viewed as radioactive, what was your thought process? Was it, I am, I, was there any part of it being like, this is a huge risk? Is this maybe a bad idea? Or did was it something that it didn't take you long to think about and agree to. Yeah, I think what most people don't know is I was actually in New Jersey for a year before I became the GM. So I came out here kind of titleless. Um, you know, I just came out here and said, "Oh, look, I'll 
help with whatever you need. So, you know, bring me on board. I've got a diverse background. I'm happy to come out. And really the premise was that, you know, trying to kind of stabilize things for Denise and see where I could be of help. So just started kind of plucking away at the foundation of Sky Blue and seeing if I could make any impact in that time. And that obviously was a very tumultuous year. I think shortly after I arrived, everything really blew up in the media. And um, so I walked right into that situation and went, okay, um, this is one time I'm kind of happy to not be the leader of a, of a situation, but, um, you know, just rode my way through that again, was trying to do whatever I could in the background. Obviously things came to kind of a, a powder keg there and, and Tammy put me into the GM role, um, in April of 2019. Um, so that was when I really took over and, um, you know, I, so I had seen the background of it for a year. I knew the owners pretty well by that point. I knew the opportunities. I had an opportunity to see the market. So it's almost like I had a year of research before I came into the role, so to speak. And now I've been, you know, the GM here for about a year and a half. And, um, you know, so it was, I had a little bit of a runway to be able to get up and running here at Sky Blue when I came into the GM role and took over. So 2020 has been a crazy year in a lot of ways um, for everybody, obviously, um, and and also for your league and your team. Um, what have been sort of the biggest challenges that you've had in trying to to navigate all this stuff this year? Where do I begin, Grant? It's like um, this was a year unlike anything I've ever seen. Just personally, professionally, otherwise, I think that go- anybody could say that, right? And certainly we've never seen anything like this in the sports world, not, not in my lifetime. So you can't prepare yourself for this. Um, you know, I think the first couple days after we, you know, went into lockdown essentially and went on the first Zoom session I'd ever been on with, with the staff and I just looked at them and I said, I have no idea how long this is going to last. I don't think any of us know. This could be two weeks. This could be two months. We don't know. You know, we were optimistic it wasn't going to be that long, but we also didn't know. And I I think in that unknowing, I just had to look at them and I I literally said, you're all going to have new jobs now. And I don't know how long that's going to last, but we now exist in this little box here. You know, we're, we're existing digitally. Those of you that were doing traditional sales, it's not going to make sense right now. So we pivoted actually really quickly. And that's, you know, the nice thing about being a small, nimble staff is we've got that capacity to be able to move very quickly to changes. Um, so yes, it's been hard. It's been tough financially, certainly. My owners will will say that wholeheartedly. Um, so it's been a tough year, but the the great thing is we you know didn't let didn't have to reduce any staffing during this time. The owners remained really committed to the club, didn't furlough anybody. You know, was able to keep everybody on board, and they've been working really hard in what I call their new roles. And we we really stepped into this and said, okay. We're just going to try to make people smile. That's all we're going to do. We know we're not selling tickets. We're not trying to gain revenue from anybody. Everybody's going through a really hard time. So we moved into a digital world and started doing all of these online events. Um, I literally just did bingo the other night with some players and a bunch of our fans. You know, we just go on and it's just to have a laugh. It's just to smile. You know, I, I was isolated during quarantine like everybody else. I, I live alone. I was alone for over three months. So I think the events were probably as much for me as they were for the fans just to have some type of camaraderie and some opportunity to engage with people. So even though it's been a massive challenge, I think we have learned new skills that I never would have learned before had we not walked into this situation. And these are things that as a staff, we're going to continue to do these types of community online events and continue to look at new ways of innovating within the game that maybe we haven't thought of before. So I was 
trying to be optimistic in all of this and, and say that, you know, we've used this as an opportunity to adjust the way we do things and use that as a positive moving forward. We've seen Lisa Baird come in as the commissioner of the league. We had her on the podcast not too long ago. And from a league-wide standpoint, do some pretty cool things with basically crazy challenges this year. And it seems like there's growing interest from sponsors, growing interest from television, growing interest from potential expansion teams in different places, including we've seen announcements in L.A. and rumblings elsewhere. Um, what's happening, in your opinion, league-wide, that despite the pandemic, despite the economic challenges, things seem to be moving in a positive direction? Yeah, I would start with just the fact that we have a commissioner. I think that shows that the, you know, the league, and when I say the league, it's really the board of governors, it's a lot of owners, made that decision to say like, hey, I, we probably missed opportunities here along the way just because we maybe lacked organization at the top level. So, you know, towards the end of last year, and it was about that time that I actually joined the board of governors. Um, so I get to represent Sky Blue there, which is is great. I, I enjoy it very much to be able to have a say at the table. Um, but it was around that time that the owners really said, we are going to really double down on this league. We're going to recommit and we're going to realistically probably spend a lot more money. So you saw the way we, they changed contracts um, increased the salary, provided better housing options year round, and also decided to hire a commissioner and to put a real, like, really put some value on that and say, hey, we need to restructure the, the league office and they need more staff, they need more support. So I think just by virtue that we have a commissioner is, is a sign of this league growing and going in the right direction and, you know, just hit the nail on the head with getting Lisa Baird, having her come in and get everybody organized and you know, be able to take on that role as the head of state here and organizing the owners is not an easy job. So, you know, bless her. She walked into this in the middle of a pandemic, uh, took this on, you know, first sports league to come back and we played in the bubble successfully. I mean, that was her vision. She drove us through this and the commercial side that she brought was tremendous. And I think that's something that we've probably been missing a bit as somebody that's sort of the head of state here that really has a strong business background that can look at it through that lens because that's sort of the frontier that I think we've really been missing as a league is taking advantage of those revenue opportunities. So Lisa, you know, report card is astounding, has done such a tremendous job since she's come in and it's really um, just gives me so much optimism for not only where the league's at, but the future of the league, even in spite of going through this situation right now with the pandemic. Yeah, I should also mention to our listeners, Big CBS is showing one game every week this month uh, from the NWSL. Your team was part of uh, the mm -hmm. one two weekends ago, which was, uh, I'm sure, appreciated by CBS, the drama in that game um, that you won. Uh, there's a couple specific topics I want to ask you about. Um, that are being talked about in the league right now. Uh, one of them is we've seen now five U.S. women's national team stars move to England um, for this season for short-term moves uh, away from the NWSL. How concerned are you? Is this something that you view as sort of a temporary thing so they can get games, or are you more concerned that this might become an even bigger deal. 
Yeah, I, I look at that from a couple different angles. One is that the game is growing worldwide, and I love that. I think it's great. It's going to challenge us. It's going to raise the stakes for everybody, and that's really important. So I like that the game is growing worldwide, and these opportunities are there. I think when we look at, you know, some of some players going on loan, there's a few different sides to that. One is I just look at it from a a humanistic standpoint that I think every player dreams of playing abroad at some point. I, you know, I dreamed of living abroad when I was younger and I got to do it and it was great. And a lot of the national teamers don't ever get that window to do that specifically. So if they're going to pick any window, I'm okay with it being right now. You know, we, we got through the Challenge Cup. It was tremendous. This fall series is a great way for some continuity, but it's not a regular season for us, whereas in England, they're playing an actual regular season, so to speak, and that's what they're attempting to do. So I think just the continuity of a training environment and you know, really meaningful games that count week in and week out, having that opportunity to do that now at a time when we're kind of in a gap and, and exploring this, I actually think the timing is okay, and I'm, I'm fine with it. I don't think it's a sign of any health of the NWSL by any means. You also have to just look at the way our country has handled the pandemic. And I won't get into a full conversation about that, but I think everybody can see that. So some of it I think is just, you know, um, logistical from what's happened in this country, you know, that we as a league, I would love to be back playing a regular league right now, but unfortunately we, you know, haven't done as great of a job handling the pandemic. So we are where we are. So I don't see it as a, a major issue. I'm actually glad that they get this opportunity to go, you know, probably fulfill this life dream. Um, you know, I'm lucky that Carly already did that. She played for Man City at one point, got that out of her system, had that experience. But, you know, I, I'm glad for the players that get this opportunity to go do that. I think it's great. And I think they'll come back energized and ready to go and excited to be back in NWSL. I'm just curious, where did you live abroad? Oh, I lived in Ireland. So I studied there for a year and a half. And I also lived in Ecuador. I did a semester there, too. So got got nice. around a little bit. Very cool. Um Another topic I wanted to ask you about is you have the only female head coach in the league right now, Freya Coombe. What is going on with that trend, and is it important to you to have a woman as your head coach? If you're meaning the trend of not having women head coaches, I think it's dumb. So that's my short answer. Um, I don't like it at all. Um, It's important to me, yes, um, personally, just being a woman in a GM role, and this is kind of rare. I only have, you know, one colleague, Steph Lee, in that GM role. Um, obviously, Amanda Duffy stepped into kind of a higher level role at Orlando as well, but it, just in traditional GM, it's me and Steph. Um, so there's not many of us. And then obviously, Freya being the only female head coach, um, it's just not really good enough, honestly. I, I don't think it's good enough, and I would like to see our report card be better in this league. At the same time, I also have been really open about talking about our lack of diversity across the board, Um, and I have to look at my own club as well in leadership roles and looking across the board at my staff. We're very homogenous. That's on me. So I take my own personal responsibilities as part of this growth process, Um, but I certainly would like to see more women head coaches get opportunities. What we are seeing, though, is more assistant women head coaches coming into roles. I have noticed that, whether it's former players like what we've done with Becca Moros being here, Julianne Sitch in Chicago. I think that is tremendous. And hopefully, you know, we get more of these, um, whether it's former pro players or otherwise, more women into these assistant roles that can hopefully then lead up into head coaching roles in the next couple of years. So that's my optimism. That's what I'm hoping we're going to see. But we do have to do better across the board. And it's been such a big aspect of 2020 leaving all of 
know, the virus stuff to the to the side, the Black Lives Matter movement has has defined this year. Do you think NW the NWSL and its teams have done enough uh, in terms of uh, of addressing it, of starting to move in the direction of of actual real change? No, is the the short answer. Um, I think as all of this was happening, you know, we were so heavily invested in the Challenge Cup and the logistics of the Challenge Cup. So I I know even for myself, as players were coming back into preseason, I had just, um, as an empath myself, was really worried about the players at that time and, you know, was, was trying to do the right thing by them and just saying, hey... I had to say to the players, if if you can't train today, that's okay. If just emotionally this isn't going to work for you, it's okay. This is a safe space. What's more important is you as a human being. And Freya and I both luckily were on the same page with that, that it's it's people first, player second. And that was how we had to approach this 100%. And sometimes that means just giving them space. They just need space to, to feel and to, to process and to go through that. So it was very difficult because on one hand, you you know, you want to do all the right things and you want to, you know, be promoting your players and to sort of be putting them out there. But a lot of them just needed space and time. And so navigating that line with them, I think, was something that we just had to learn. Um, you know, I, I'm really pleased with some of the efforts the league took. A lot of them are driven by the players, which I think is the right approach. You know, I, I'm at the end of the day, not the right person to come up with all the ideas and concepts. I am here and my players know that. Um, the players at Sky Blue know that I'm here for them in any capacity they want. When they were talking about that that first game that we had of the fall series, you know, I, I just went to them and I said, like, I'm here for you. You tell me what you need, whatever I can help get for you if you want to make a statement or you want to do something within the game. Just know I'm here. Um, but they really took it on themselves and they ran with it. And that was awesome. And I was there when they, you know, were trying to find a t-shirt company and was trying to help them along the way, but, but they figured it out on their own. And, um, I think just giving them the power to be able to take the spaces and the platforms that we have, again, the players at Sky Blue know that our social media is theirs. If they've got something to say, we're here for them to amplify that message and I think for me, that's been the most important thing. And they're starting to get themselves more organized. We're seeing that now with the, I think they're still working on their title, but you know, for lack of a better term, the Black Players Coalition of the NWSL. And we have several players that have stepped up. And uh, obviously, Mitch Purse has been very vocal and um, around those those matters. So, you know, I, I'm proud to have a team of players that are are speaking up, and we want to continue to provide that platform. I think where we are falling short is in the white players within this league. And I would like, and it may be a case of they aren't sure what to do, right? And they may need some help with that. But that's an area that I would like to see continue to grow. It can't be on the backs of the black players that we're just expecting them to go out and drive all of the initiatives. I would like to see our the allies um, within the league and the other players actually step up as well and, and be what they need for the players. I, I've certainly seen it in the support that they provide. And you know, some of the, you know, the warm up t-shirts and some of those things, but I would like to see that go a step further. And that's just going to be part of our league's evolution as we move forward is, is seeing more of that allyship and really um, meaningful progress on some of those fronts. Just to wrap up, appreciate you taking this much time. Where do you and your team go from here? Like, what do you want to see this team do moving forward? Big question. Ooh, that's a, that's a way to end. Um, 
We've got big, big dreams, big plans here at Sky Blue. You know, it's um, we've we've seen the on-field improvement, and we want to continue to move there. My goal this year was actually to make the playoffs, and we made the semifinals of the Challenge Cup, which I guess is the only equivalent I can use. Um, so that was really exciting um, for us. I think we have a great team, and I'm really happy with not only the way they perform on the field, but who they are off the field. It's just really nice to be around. It's kind of a, a happy space, and I like that. That's what I want out of a club, you know, somewhere you're excited to go every day, and you like being around the people that are there, and the staff is really great. Um, for us, in the New York, New Jersey marketplace, we have to be one of the preeminent clubs in the NWSL. We have to be one of the preeminent clubs in the world. That's what I believe, and I think we have the platform here. We just have to take advantage of it and continue to push forward. So that's what I'm going to try to do as long as I'm here is just to keep pushing those buttons, hopefully create more innovations around the women's game that we don't have to maybe do things exactly the same way that the men's game has done it. We're smaller, more nimble. I think we can take more risks. We can be more innovative in that front. Um, so that's what I hope to do at Sky Blue is, is to continue to grow our community continue to be a safe space for diversity that represents our whole community. We're in one of the most diverse areas of the world. Our club should represent that on and off the field. Um, so those are some of the, the dreams I have. A lot of off-field, you know, on-field's great. I think they're going to do well. I'm, you know, I, I let them go do their thing. But there's a lot of stuff off the field, too, that I think we can continue to grow in terms of community and how we really embrace um, the diversity of, of where we're at. I do have one quick follow-up question. So I lied about having the last question. Uh, Sky Blue has, has been the name of this team. And this Sky Blue has won championships in, in previous leagues. To be sort of globally recognized when you're based in, you know, you play your games in the New York City area, is there ever a point at which the, the club would consider renaming, putting the name New York in the name? Yeah, we talked about this at length, you know, when I when I came into the role, that was one of my biggest things. And the irony is at the time I was sort of looking for a rebrand because we had been so damaged in a lot of ways that the, the name had become synonymous with maybe not a positive feeling, you know, for a lot of people, players, fans, otherwise. So that's what I thought the rebrand was necessary for. But Obviously, we've been able to stabilize the ship, and I think things are okay right now. But you're right, Sky Blue is a neutral moniker. It's, you know, somebody in Europe, are they going to know what Sky Blue means? Are they going to know where that's at? These are certainly questions that we've been analyzing um, really since I came in a year and a half ago, and we continue to look at. And, you know, it, it wouldn't surprise me if we, we go in the direction of looking at, you know, how can we better encompass who we are and representative of this area um, and, and what that logo, obviously the logo needs a refresh. I've been saying that for, that's not private. You know, it's, it's been long overdue and obviously you can see the colors behind me. You're on, you're on video, but, uh, you know, the logo, we kind of switched the colors up a bit this year just to freshen it up a little bit, um, to get by, but, you know, we've been exploring what we can do with that to better encompass where we're at and be more recognizable in that regard. Elise LeHue is the general manager of Sky Blue FC, which is playing games uh, on CBS platforms for the next couple of weeks still. Elise, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Grant. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Elise LeHue as well as producer Chris Whittingham. I also want to thank Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove of our partner, The Total Soccer Show, for everything they've done to help get this show off the ground. 
I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. Mm-hmm.